Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cotta. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, hard as it may be to believe, Jim and I are going to admit we were wrong. Yes, Greg, we'll confess to some of our lapses in critical judgment, and later on we'll review the new albums from The Hold Steady and King Kong. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is the Justin Timberlake song, Rock Your Body, which uh, served as the soundtrack, as it were, for the infamous wardrobe malfunction at the halftime of the 2004 Super Bowl. Justin Timberlake, for nine-sixteenths of a second, pulled down (laughs) Janet Jackson's top and revealed a a bit of a nipple and resulted in a huge scandal. Numerous complaints to uh, CBS, which broadcast that Super Bowl halftime, and then a huge fine imposed by the Federal Communications Commission against the broadcaster, $550,000. Well, that fine was rescinded by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which ruled basically that there was no malice intended. The broadcaster didn't know that this was going to happen. It was, in fact, a mistake, and they shouldn't be held liable for it. When this initially went down four years ago, you saw a real chilling effect in the kind of images and the kind of language yeah. that broadcasters were using on both television and radio. And we now here at Sound of, Opinions yes. had to start wearing pants when we do the show. <laughs> we don't want to get into that. Let me oh, tell no, you, I'm we sorry. don't want to hang our dirty laundry out here. But basically, the, the courts are basically loosening the reins a little bit here and saying, despite all the complaints that they got from viewers about that, that this is not the broadcaster's fault and uh, they shouldn't be fined Well, where are the American standards? That's the the challenging question that's been posed to the broadcasters. It's how much can you say and how much should you show? And I don't know. We just had the Emmy nominations uh, last week. And, you know, uh, shows like Mad Men and uh, Saving Grace on basic cable, you know, ran away with all the Emmy nominations, Mm -hmm. both of which are pretty risque. It seems like many Americans don't mind seeing... Uh, you know, nine sixteenths of a nipple. Yeah, it's a common sense issue, and frankly, uh, it seems like the court made a smart ruling, but it's going to be appealed, and we haven't seen the end of this. Yes, Mr. Cod girls, they just want to have fun. That is Miley Cyrus covering the uh, Cindy Lauper hit from the 80s on her new album called Breakout. It's the first one she's released that doesn't have any connection to her alter ego on TV, the Disney superstar Hannah Montana. This is all Miley 
just Miley. <laughs> I think the big concern that a lot of parents have about this new Miley Cyrus album is, is she still singing like a nine-year-old girl or singing things appropriate to a nine- or 11-year-old girl? Or is she becoming a little bit more mature and too mature for your daughter's ears? No two ways about it. I mean, she is an economic powerhouse, seven million albums sold to date. The tour, you'll remember, prompted congressional <laughs> investigations because tickets sold out so fast. This album comes to us riding a wave of hype that includes a half-naked photo in Vanity Fair and interviews where Miley Cyrus, Billy Ray Cyrus's daughter, of course, has been dropping provocative hints like, I'd like to do a sex in the city for girls. So parents are concerned. You know, your kids are going to be listening to this album. It's going to be impossible to escape because it comes at you from the mighty Disney machine on Radio Disney, on TV. There's a Hannah Montana movie in the works. What are they going to hear, right? And and more importantly, what are you going to hear? <laughs> and how painful is it going to be? But we'll we'll talk about the music in a minute. Let's hear the title track. It's called Breakout on Sound Opinions. Title track of the new Miley Cyrus album, Breakout, on Sound Opinions. Jim, you mentioned economic juggernaut. Uh, She's been in the news. You have a daughter, you have a niece, you have a next-door neighbor or a neighbor's neighbor who is somehow involved in this artist's career. This is (laughs) (laughs) the one artist that any adolescent girl wants to be or wants to attend their concert or wants to buy their album. The boys have the Dark Knight this summer, and everybody else has uh, the girls have Miley Cyrus. And if you are an authority figure or a parental figure in that person's life, you have nothing to worry about. This is very much assembly line pop rock uh, with some mild intimations of independence and self-knowledge, a little hint of teen rebellion, but nothing out of the ordinary. There's no sense here of, you know, I'm going to go in here and destroy the house. I want to kill mom and dad and run away with my boyfriend type of uh, Well, music. no, I, what I was concerned about as someone who, who lives with someone who's yeah. very much a Miley Cyrus fan is, you know, look, there's two ways for the child star from the Disney machine to go. They can go in that rare way where it seems to be that they become a young woman who's successful like they were a young girl who was successful, Hilary Duff, or Britney Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan or Vanessa Hudgens on the other side of the spectrum where all of a sudden overnight they tramp out and really kind of pander to the lowest common denominator. And I think that the Annie Leibovitz photo and Vanity Fair hinted that Miley Cyrus was going to go in that direction. Yeah, it set off some alarm bells. But don't you think what we've got here is basically a pop rock album and sort yeah. of the Avril Lavigne, Kelly Clarkson vein? Absolutely. And I think it's great stuff. 
I think well, I think that this is a great, great stuff. Is with oh, absolutely. As bubblegum goes, this is class A bubblegum. Look, Patti Smith, if she tried to make an album for nine-year-olds, couldn't sing it any better than Miley look, did. Look, Tired if, of being told what to do. Look, if so you were, unfair, so uncool. If you were 12, 13 years old in, say, the early 80s and you picked up a Go-Go's album, this isn't quite as good as that. Breakout is written by Gina Schock, I, the Go-Go's drummer. Absolutely. Okay? I think that this is absolutely wonderful, and I think that she is Absolutely gonna, wonderful. Yeah, I like this album. I actually, you know... Me and my my eleven year old, you got to be kidding me. No, she can sing. You know, she's got the fifteen year old version of that Bonnie Raitt rasp. There's a real appealing kind of hoarseness in Miley Cyrus's voice. She's a much better singer than any of the other stable of Disney uh, teen pop queens. I'll tell you, this is pretty much assembly line stuff. It is second or third rate go go's. Nobody's going to get harmed listening to this. The, the hope here is that some young girl is going to listen to this record and use it as a stepping stone to get to the Go Go's and then maybe Discover X and maybe Patti Smith after that. I'll give it a burn it because, as a parent or as a concerned authority figure in somebody's <laughs> life, you probably need to hear this, but you don't really don't need to buy it. It's going to be everywhere for the next year. Well, no, you don't need to buy it. I mean, just like you don't need to buy, you know, sugary soft drink. But, you know, I mean, it's summertime and you want something sweet and cold, and I'm buying it. I been so wrong for so long thought I could live without the love that you give I was wrong oh so you are listening to Sound Opinions, and now, Greg, it is time for us to share with our listeners when we were wrong. I think a lot of people who listen to this show have no problem calling us every week and telling us we are wrong. And, and don't, don't think you're hurting our feelings. We can take it. In fact, early in my career, the, the best piece of advice I ever got about rock criticism, I spent a long day with Lester Bangs, you know, when I was 17, and it inspired me to be a rock critic. And he said, I never am afraid of doubling back on myself. I get myself wrong all the time and never trust a critic who is afraid to say that he or she doesn't change his or her mind. Right. You know, you live with music and you either learn to appreciate it more and you've missed what was great about it the first time or you, you know, realize it really doesn't hold up to the praise that you thought it was worthy the first time you wrote about it. So so that's what this show is dedicated to. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. And I had an editor who once uh, referred to writing reviews for a daily newspaper as a jazz solo. Basically, there was one take, yeah. no overdubs. I mean, you, you put it on the line there after, you know, 40 minutes of writing, and you had to live with that. But you look back and you go, man, I wish I had a week to write that one, or I wish I had <laughs> a year to think about there. that one. There were some bum solos in there, let me tell you. So we're going to reveal a few of those here. To start things off, we'd love to do a coin toss to get things going. We've got Peter Gerlnick on one side for me, Lester Bangs on the other side for you. The coin's in the air, and it's... Oh, it's Goralnik. That means you get to go first. Absolutely. All right. I think one of the big issues that I grapple with all the time is this whole idea, okay, as a critic, you're sort of looking at this as an art form. It's not just entertainment. You're looking for innovation. You're looking for uh, artistic merit, somebody who's trying to advance the art form. And sometimes you make a mistake. You sometimes think, well, you mistake something different for innovation. One of the mistakes that I've made that I keep getting reminded of to this day, in fact, is my touting of the band Jesus Jones in the early 90s. I don't really have a good explanation for that other than the (laughs) fact that at the time it sounded really different and really cool and the future of music in some ways. It was a kind of a fallow time for music. 
right around the turn of the 90s. There hadn't been a lot of good rock music in the mainstream, and Jesus Jones had a couple of hits with a sound that incorporated elements of electronic music and techno, which was still a fairly new phenomenon at the time, and combined it with the crunch of rock guitars. And I thought, wow, that's a cool sound. It's, it's innovative. It's got, it's got the look of the future about it. I love that song right here, right now. I thought that's a big optimistic anthem, and it's going to carry this group to the top. Yeah. And my one, <laughs> my one little anecdote about Jesus Jones is that the bass player in the, in the band ended up showing up at my house four or five years later as an exterminator based in Chicago. So uh, needless to say, Jesus Jones didn't go quite as far as I thought they might. Here's just a little sampling because we don't want to torture you for an uh, extreme <laughs> amount of time here of uh, Right Here, Right Now from, from Jesus Jones on Sound Opinions. Yes, that's quite enough of that. The flip side of the Jesus Jones equation is that as critics, we tend to sometimes underestimate the crowd-pleasing band, the band that appeals to the masses, that makes music that just makes you feel good. That was the case with Oasis. I was skeptical about the first couple of records. I saw their first U.S. show back in 1994, and I'm going, yeah, I've heard this all before. You know, the Stone Roses did it better, man. It was just yeah, one of those yeah. things where you just, you didn't hear anything new here. A bunch of classic rock anthems sung with kind of this sneering Mancunian accent by this guy, Liam Gallagher, who thought he walked on water. Who and, didn't move on stage, <laughs> right? And also, you got to remember the, the hype. I mean, those guys were, were saying, well, you know, we're Jesus, second coming here. You and, know. And, and, you know, critics love to be the hype busters, saying, no, 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 they're not all that. And uh, essentially, I wrote that about the first couple of Oasis albums. And I go back and listen to those records 10 years later, and I go, what the heck? There's nothing wrong with this. These are good, melodic, heavy rock songs. There's a reason that this band sold millions and millions of records in the UK and are still superstars today. What I can't countenance is the fact that this band is still upheld as superstars in the UK, even though they well, haven't made a good record. Yeah, I mean, why in about they sold decade. 40 million records and a band like Ride sold one two hundredth of that? Ride's, you know, one of Ride's leaders winds up being their bass player. It's just no justice. Well, that's true, but then you go back and listen to What's the Story, Morning Glory, an album that I was lukewarm on when it came on. I go back and listen to it now and I go, you know what, Cot, you screwed up. That's a, that's a pretty good record. <laughs> so here's a little bit of Oasis on Sound Opinions. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where were you while we were getting high? Someday you will find me. Champagne supernova in the sky Someday you will find me Carping beneath the landslide In a champagne supernova A champagne supernova in the sky Sure 
Champagne Supernova from Oasis, I need to apologize to uh, the Gallagher Brothers. <laughs> I don't think they need your penance. <laughs> no, they uh, don't need it. You're right. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a trivia thing about Champagne Supernova. I have a friend, and this is a foolproof formula. It works. When you get an annoying song caught in your ear, you know, from a commercial or yeah. some song you hate, if you sing Champagne Supernova to yourself, <laughs> the, the hook is so massive, you yeah. will therefore get rid of the other song. Unfortunately, right. then you have Oasis in your head all day. <laughs> but uh, I was having a hard time, and, and our producers here on Sound Opinions were giving me endless guff about me not being able to come up with bands that I initially said were great that I now hate. We also do this other show once in a while, Guilty Pleasures. Right. I, I, I will not repent for enjoying the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are, there are things I should be ashamed about liking in the black <laughs> or Miley Cyrus. I just championed her before. There are things that I hear in there that that I I take pleasure. In. I'm a hedonist. I, oh, I won't man. be guilty about my pleasures. What I'm often guilty about is the album that's that's really complex and it takes some time to live with and right. to appreciate. Radiohead's OK Computer was certainly one of those. It came to us heavily hyped, and so there was that skepticism on my part, and there was the one-hit wonder kind of beginnings of, of Radiohead's career when they scored with Creep, and now all of a sudden, you know, the music press around the world is proclaiming this masterpiece of the modern age, and they're comparing it to Pink Floyd, which is one of my sacred bands, and I'm listening to it, and I hear the tortured moaning of a twisted gnome. <laughs> now. Tom York's vocals are a hurdle to overcome, but also there was a kind of real alienating sound to this entire album that really put me off for a long time and kept me away. And it was only later on when I kind of got over my York vocal phobia and realized that, wait a minute, the, the reason it sounds that way is it's part of the message. I mean, this is a critique of the sort of loss of human soul in the digital age. And man, I completely missed that point. Yeah. <laughs> I completely <laughs> missed that point. And when you get past the surface patina of this harsh digital kind of sound, there's this this wonderful soul of a guy who can't really sing but is singing his heart out. Right on, Jim. Beautiful melody. Yeah, and I, you know, I've been wrong. I was so wrong about an OK Computer, and here it is. I mean, I was a, I was a metalhead, a bonehead on this one. <laughs> I was not the paranoid android, but Radiohead was. Here they are. Android by Radiohead on Sound Opinions. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll continue to confess our critical mistakes, and later on in the show, we'll review two new albums from The Hold Steady and King Kong.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. This particular penitent sinner is Jim Deergatis. My partner is Greg Todd. He's <laughs> equally wrong, just as often. We are doing the We Were Wrong show, where we're fessing up to reviews we gave that initially were off the mark. Uh, Greg, I think one factor that plays into uh, whether you love or hate a band sometimes is your friends. And, uh, you know, there's this knee-jerk reaction, I think, in the indie music world where when somebody is really just religiously devoted to some act, you almost want to go the opposite direction just, you know, to be perverse. I had a buddy in New Jersey I was in a lot of bands with. He was a good friend of mine. He was a mod. Now, granted, I'm... uh, I'm skeptical of any sort of rock and roll that you have to dress up to play. <laughs> I just I didn't buy into the mod agenda. He was the world's biggest jam fan, and as a result, I just loved to tweak him all the time. I came to appreciate the jam backwards. I, I eventually fell in love, I, I think, in the mid to late 90s with Paul Weller's solo output, which has really been, been universally great. The guy's prolific, and he never makes a bad solo album. Some of them are better than others. There's always three or four or five great songs on each record. And then I, I finally had to admit, i got to go back and reassess the jam. And That's Entertainment in particular is it's actually... A great song. Oh, my God. It's a brilliant song about critique of society and the trivialities that, that distract you from the meaningful things in life. And, you know, I hate the jam. I never got them, and now I do, and I'm sorry, Paul Weller. Here's a little jam on Sound Opinion. Holidays, that's entertainment. 
That's Entertainment by The Jam. That's a mistake by Jim. Now hopefully uh, rectified. <laughs> Glad you saw the light on that one, Jim. That is a great, great song. To your point about Radiohead, where it, it took you a while to understand OK Computer, I understand that completely because I had the same issue with uh, a U2 record, Octung Baby. Mm. Uh, when it came out in 1991, I think everyone at that point was used to a certain sound from U2. Uh, whether you loved or hated it, they were this arena rock band in the 80s, and they were waving white flags, and they, they epitomized that sound for many people in, in the 80s. When they came out with Octung Baby, I think it was a left turn that a lot of people weren't expecting, including me. I wasn't the biggest U2 fan at the time, and this record only seemed to indicate to me a certain amount of desperation when it came out. Like, uh, they have to reinvent themselves. They're not cool anymore. They need to forge a new sound to keep up with what's going on around them in order to remain relevant. And I didn't exactly hate the record, but I certainly didn't give it the credit it was due. It was only until I saw the tour that followed the release of Octoon Baby that I realized, wow, this thing has got a lot of stuff going on in it that I missed the first time. And in, in a sense, it was talking about this breakdown of technology, much in the same way that uh, Radiohead addressed yeah. an OK Computer and how that was influencing, you know, this, the spreading out of media, the fact that there was more technology than ever, and yet at the same time abusing this technology and abusing this media and, and forging some new ideas out of that in, in ways that I thought were really innovative. I, I, in fact, I think as far as arena tours go, U2 circa 91, 92 was as good as it got and uh, yeah. made me see that Octung Baby record in a new light. I now think it is by far the best U2 record, and I wish they were making records that good I was going to say, you know, every, every U2 record since you've said this isn't as good as Octung Baby. You <laughs> yeah. really did a 180 on that one. Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was the great period for that band, and it's something that I didn't hear the first time around with the record. So uh, here's a little bit of Octung Baby and uh, a sense of what that new sound was about back then, the track called Zoo Station on Sound Opinions.
That's Zoo Station from U2 on Sound Opinions, uh, a track that I was initially wrong about and now have grown to love a great deal. Still the best U2 album as far as I'm concerned. Another iconic band from that 80s, 90s period was uh, R.E.M. and a band that I've written many things about many times. Uh, Loved some records, didn't like some others. One of their records that I loved initially and uh, have grown to regret what I said about it when uh, it initially came out uh, was R.E.M.'s Monster, which came out in 1994. And I think in some ways, Jim, this was uh, an error of wishful thinking. I wanted R.E.M. to be good, and I wanted them to rock very hard. And they were, you know, hinting at all of that at the, around that time. I think there was a little bit of, you know, fallout, too, from the fact that uh, Kurt Cobain had died, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a few months before that. You could sort of see an era ending Cobain was uh, was big friends with these guys. He he saw them as sort of uh, Godfather type figures, yeah, you know, it was big brother he was, figures. He was going to make an album with Michael Stipe. Yeah, he loved them, and and you know anybody who grew up in the eighties was influenced by REM to an extent, whether they would admit it or not. And Monster was the record that they were going to take on the road. There was going to be heavier guitars. It was going to be a rocking sound, harkening back to some of their harder edged eighties stuff. And I wanted it to be good, and I suppose my wishful thinking got in the way of my critical judgment. It's now a record I find very difficult to listen to. And I think what it's lacking is, is a well, two things. A, sincerity, one of the things that I always mm-hmm. valued about R.E.M. I, I saw them hiding behind a lot of masks, and at the time I thought that was kind of cool. It's their glam record. But now I see it as kind of shallow emotionally, especially when you compare it to a record like Automatic for the People. And secondly, even though there was these heavier guitar sound on the record, there really weren't the songs there to back it up. Songs that really don't stand the test of time the way the best R.E.M. music does. So I regret louding this album back hmm. in 1994. I can't say the same about it in 2008. Here's a little bit of uh, Monster from R.E.M. on Sound Opinions. Let Me In from R.E.M., actually one of the more heartfelt songs on the record. Stipe's goodbye note to uh, Kurt Cobain, in a yeah. way, but uh, a very slow, slow-moving track. Well, when you're talking about a band with a catalog like R.E.M.'s, or, or U2's, for that matter, I think the test is, today, if you're going to go to your shelf of R.E.M. records, right. and I have one, too. I mean, I have 12 or 15, right, plus all the bootlegs and stuff. Which ones do I pull out right. first? Of the 20 records on my shelf, this is like going to be number 19 or 20 yeah, that I, I haven't played for. this record in 10 years, and, and there's I, a reason for that, you know? <laughs> I don't think it's unfair 
there to hold yeah. a, a band up to its own best. Look, is anybody going to play Steel Wheels by the Rolling Stones ever again? Right. You know, my final band that I came around to is uh, the Arcade Fire. You were talking before about seeing the Zoo TV tour, and that's what turned you around on on Octung Baby. Yeah, there are definitely certain bands that you have to see live mm-hmm. in order to really appreciate and to understand. Now, Arcade Fire's debut album, Funeral, arrived on a wave of hype. So initially, you're always a little bit reluctant to, to buy into a hype. You listen perhaps a bit more critically. But in particular, I, I was a huge fan of this orc pop genre, where bands begin to bring in the instruments of the orchestra, and they get a lot more ambitious about the pop craftsmanship and you know we had a lot of groups around the time the arcade fire emerged you going back to pet sounds and trying to do the kind of ambitious orchestrations that brian wilson did with the beach boys and i love this genre so i was extra critical because you know i had certain expectations and you hear funeral and it comes with this heavy concept of this is this album about people dying in your life and it's you know and and the songs are all called neighborhood number one and neighborhood number two and they only have a real title in the parentheses and what is this all about and this is the wrong side of orc pop i really don't think the xylophones and the and the hurdy-gurdies work and all that silliness you know and then I saw the band live. And this is partly their fault. I don't think it's a particularly <laughs> well-produced album. You don't get a sense of those incredible rhythms mm-hmm. that you get live. You know, Arcade Fire, at, at points, all of the musicians put down the violins and stuff, and they all pick up percussion, and they ride this wave of rhythm. And then all of a sudden, like, wait a minute, that's the Feelies rhythm. Yeah. There's the Feelies again. We just talked about them last week. That That's, like, irresistible. This is one of the best rhythmic bands I've heard in a long time. And then I think when you go back to the record, it, it enhances your appreciation of it a lot. Mm-hmm. I was really lukewarm to downright negative on Funeral when it came out. I am a believer now. This is one of the tracks, I think the track that turned me around. It's called Neighborhood Number 2, parentheses, Leica, by the Arcade Fire on Sound Opinions.
neighborhood number two, Leica by Arcade Fire. You can see how initially, you know, you're skeptical of anything with an accordion, right? <laughs> yeah. But man, the drums in the end win the day, and so do the melodies. And well, but what the heck? I mean, I was wrong. We could go on and on and on, Jim. There's a stack of, and I'm sure there's a bunch of listeners out there right now who are saying, but, but, you, were, you missed this one, Cod. They missed that would one, go Gary on and on, yeah. Absolutely. And to uh, remind us of uh, other faux pas in our critical career, give us a call at 888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and uh, maybe we're going to be wrong again, but I hope not. Uh, we're going to review a couple of records from uh, The Hold Steady and King Kong. That's next on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You are hearing a little bit of the new Hold Steady record called Stay Positive, a track called Sequestered in Memphis. In the review segment of the show, we're going to focus a little bit on the Pitchfork Music Festival that just played Union Park in Chicago. We had about 50,000 people from around the world come to Chicago over the weekend to see a bunch of uh, the best and brightest of the indie music community, as well as a few old pros like Spiritualized. We want to focus on a couple of bands that made a big impression during that festival, and one of them was the Hold Steady. They had a prime slot on Saturday night, uh, playing in front of about 20,000 people, and did a remarkable job of playing like an arena rock band. They might as well <laughs> yeah, have been absolutely. At, at Wembley that night, Jim. So they're out now with their fourth record. Yeah, well, Craig Finn, the, the leader of the Hold Steady, is unapologetic in his admiration for old-school rootsy arena rock heavy on the springsteen yeah i would also say quite a bit of john mellencamp in there he uh is a champion of the blue collar shot in a beer kind of <laughs> rock with literary aspirations their last album 2006's boys and girls in america took its title from a line by jack kerouac 
The band leader Finn initially started out with an underrated indie rock group from Minneapolis called Lifter Puller, decided in time to reinvent himself, moved to Brooklyn, formed the Hold Steady, and now has been fairly prolific. As you said, this is the fourth album since 2004. I think it's one of the most anticipated indie releases of the year. Stay Positive is the name of the record. We're going to play a track, and then as always, we'll uh, give our opinions and grade it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. This is a song that's getting a lot of attention this summer because it is a classic summer track. <laughs> we mm-hmm. did that show a while back. It's the lead single on the record, Constructive Summer by The Hold Steady on Sound Opinions. <laughs> Constructive Summer from the Hold Steady, their new album, Stay Positive. Uh, big, heavy guitar sound. A lot is made about uh, Craig Finn and his literary aspirations. He's a, he's a lot of fun to watch on stage. I compared him to a guy running across a four-lane highway uh, at rush hour, <laughs> waving arm his arms waving, around. Yeah. And, uh, he's just a fun guy to watch. He, he really enjoys his work. But I think the, uh, the secret weapon in the band is uh, Tad Kubler, the guitar player. And when he revved up those riffs, especially on the last album, Boys and Girls in America, you know, there were a lot of references to uh, 70s Thin Lizzy. People keep bringing up the Springsteen references. I hear a lot of Thin Lizzy in this guy. Mm. I hear a lot of uh, ACDC references as well. The harder edge of the arena rock sound. And Kubler, when he's on, really made that band for me, especially on that last record. The hooks aren't quite there in abundance on this record, though. And I have to say, from that standpoint, it's a disappointing record for me. There are a few songs where you get those 
those massive whoa, whoa, whoa choruses and those guitars are revving up. But there's a lot of heavy narrative here, again, from Craig Finn. There's yeah. a few slower-moving tracks. And while I admire the keyboardist, I think he's a, an interesting musician, there's one track with a harpsichord on it. Yeah, the harpsichord there is just dreadful. There should not be any harpsichord on a Hold Steady album. There's a lot of filigree on this record, Greg, and these guys are trying to really kind of do that Springsteen E Street Band wall of sound. But they are an indie band, and I don't know. Everything feels very overblown on record. They drive me crazy. You were a huge fan of Boys and Girls in America. I disliked it intensely. Talk about a we were wrong moment. I uh, saw the group for the second or third time at the Pitchfork Fest. I thought they were wonderful Mm -hmm. in that context. Right. They've got a field of 20,000 people. They came out. They delivered big riffs, and they had chant-along choruses. But, you know, on the record, you're listening to it, and you're looking for the melody, and you're trying to figure out what the song is about, and you're getting distracted by needless harpsichord frivolity, and you're thinking... Wait a minute, there's a whole lot of nothing here. Buy It, Burn It, Trash It, i got to say this is a Trash It record. It, it, it not only does nothing for me, it actively annoys me. I wouldn't go so far as to say trash the whole thing because I think there are a couple of classic Hold Steady tracks on this record. I, I will name Stay Positive. I would name Slapped Actress. I would name Constructive Summer as really good Hold Steady tracks, but I think the rest of it doesn't hold up. So I would say burn those three tracks and trash the rest. <laughs> took my lady to dinner from the supreme genius of King Khan and the Shrines. That's Khan as in K-H-A-N, not Kong like the big monkey. This is an interesting checkered history that we have here, and it came into full view of the American public at Pitchfork. Uh, Not many people in America have seen this guy and his band perform, but they got a full dose of King Khan and the Shrines at the Pitchfork Festival. A lot of people talking about the set afterward. A compilation of his work, which has largely been issued in Europe, has finally come out in this country, and that's the record we're reviewing right now. What's his history? Well, he was born 31 years ago in Canada. His parents are of Indian descent, and he moved to Europe about 10 years ago and started playing in a, in a bunch of funk bands, heavily influenced by people like James Brown, but giving it a serious, serious twist. And as I said, his first record is finally out in the States. It's a compilation of about a half dozen records that he has put out in Europe where he has become somewhat of a sensation on the touring circuit. Here's a little bit more of King Con and the Shrines. It's called Torture on Sound Opinions. <laughs>
could hear your voice oh, When you call my name now, child I really have no choice That's Torture by King Khan and the Shrines from this new compilation, which is a fine introduction to his work, the supreme genius of King Khan and the Shrines. Greg, I saw a little more of King Khan than I wanted to at Pitchfork. <laughs> I wish that gentleman would have worn a few more clothes. <laughs> there is an element of that super flamboyant Iggy Pop kind of throw yourself into the music 150%, lose it in the moment thing happening. I think in some ways it almost detracts from the music. When you listen to this collection of stuff that was put out in Europe, what comes across is is a absolutely stellar R&B, soul, big-time funk with a little bit of garage band. I mean, he's got veteran players from uh, Ike and Tina Turner and Curtis Mayfield and Bo Diddley, some really wonderful horn players. And on top of that, he's doing a, you know, a very rough and ragged, kind of a, a garage punk version mm-hmm. of James Brown. On stage, uh, as I said, it's almost a little bit outsider art, you know, like Daniel Johnston or something, where people are just rooting for him to lose it and to really misbehave. And it's almost a distraction from how cool the music is. I, I actually like the album much, much better than the stage show. Well, what I saw on the stage show was just, I mean, it was an X-rated show. There's no doubt about that. I didn't see any nudity, but it's certainly the subject matter in the songs. I mean, if uh, it had a sort of a connection to what James Brown was doing in the 60s when he was in the greatest hard funk band ever. But he was never singing about crack dens, X-rated sex, and welfare the way this guy does. I mean, he, he, he's talking about, we're talking about the seedy side of soul and funk here, you know, in terms of the subject matter, and in some cases the presentation. I see a lot of references, though, to that, not so much James Brown, but the Nuggets-era garage rock yeah. bands that were taking soul and funk and R&B and doing their own twisted interpretations of it. There's definitely a, a psychedelic aspect to this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, let's all go to the opium den and then see what we sound like doing this funk music afterward. Yeah, and it's bad trip psychedelia, not the sunny stuff. Uh, absolutely. And it's fierce, ferocious stuff. It's the real deal. He's got an 11-piece multiracial band. As you said, there's uh, some serious veteran musicians in this band. It sounds great. I-, I think this is a great introduction to the music. As I said, you might tread cautiously when you see this guy live. Don't bring any underage people to this show. They might be in for the shock of their life. But, uh, <laughs> other than that, this is, this is great stuff. I'd say buy it all the way. I'm with you, Greg. This is definitely a buy record and the best thing about buying the record is you don't have to see King Con without his pants on. What do we have next week on the show? Next week we're going to take the pulse of the live music scene, Jim, in America. We're going to have a, a panel of club owners and talent buyers tell us what's going on in live music in America today. We have some thank yous to say on our way out. Sound Opinions is produced as always by Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and our intern is Dylan Peterson. And a man who's never wrong, at least we won't say it to his face, Tori Southside Malatia, our executive producer. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say.
New messages. Hi, guys. This is Tiffany from Chicago, and I just wanted to add one more perspective to the phenomena of the soaring vinyl record sales being due to the fact that somebody figured out to include the MP3s along with the record. That's been kind of a recent thing. And in my own music purchasing, I hadn't bought vinyl for years because MP3s are just more convenient for traveling and portable listening, and it's really time-consuming to convert your albums to MP3s at home. So now buyers have the best of both worlds. So when I have a record, I can listen to the high quality at home and then also have the portability of the MP3, and it's great. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Jamie from Milwaukee. I was on vacation last week, and I just listened to some back-to-back podcasts. And I do got to tell you, I can't agree with you more about the Nas record. I've been a fan since Filmatic, and, uh, you know, it's really hard to follow up pretty much what could be the greatest record in hip-hop history right out the box. Yeah, this record is terrible. It's worse than hip-hop is dead, and, and, and that was dreadful. Keep up the good work, guys. Gentlemen, this is uh, Jim from Hillsborough, North Carolina, uh, commenting on your sub pop show. One glaring oversight that I noticed was that you didn't mention the fact that um, during Paul Grunge phase, the sub pop had the wherewithal to put out the Reverend Horton Heat. go wrong with, with the Reverend as far as I'm concerned and uh, uh, any of the tracks like Psychobilly Freak Out specifically from the sub pop genre uh, I think that sub pop you know was were one of the first to notice him and to give him the credit that he is due thanks very much and uh, keep up the good work guys. Mark in Los Angeles. Huge fan of the show. God bless you both. Uh, love that Feely show. So heartened to see that they're playing again. I only hope that they come out west to do some shows. But one thing you neglected to mention is the fact that, to the best of my knowledge, these records aren't available at the moment. They are out of print. 
something crazy risen is going for something like $40 on Amazon, and that's just a crime. So let's just get those records back in print and spread the good word about the feelies. Bye, guys. Keep it up. Thanks. messages to give us your opinion on sound opinions call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media